Hi, my name is Naomi, and the Old Testament reading is found in Deuteronomy 12, 5 to 7. But you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go, and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes, and the contribution that you present, your vow offerings, your free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your households, in all that you undertake, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Pam. The New Testament reading is found in Acts 5, verses 1 through 6. However, a man named Ananias, along with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. With his wife's knowledge, he withheld some of the proceeds from the sale. He brought the rest and placed it in the care and under the authority of the apostles. Peter asked, Ananias, how is it that Satan has influenced you to lie to the Holy Spirit by withholding some of the proceeds from the sale of your land? Wasn't that property yours to keep? After you sold it, wasn't the money yours to do with whatever you wanted? What made you think of such a thing? You haven't lied to other people but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he dropped dead. Everyone who heard this conversation was terrified. Some young men stood up, wrapped up his body, carried him out, and buried him. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Ken. Uh, thank you for standing for the gospel reading found in Matthew 6, 19 through, through 24. Stop collecting treasures for your own benefit on earth, where moth and rust eat them, and where thieves break in and steal them. Instead, collect treasures for yourself in heaven, where moth and rust don't eat them and where thieves don't break in and steal them. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. Therefore, if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how terrible that darkness will be. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be loyal to the one and have contempt for the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The gospel of the Lord. Praise be to our Lord Christ. Let's remain standing as we pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for the way that you call us to yourself. As we come now to open up the scriptures and to hear your word being read and taught, would you open up our hearts? Come now by the power of your Holy Spirit and open our minds and our lives to surrender to you. Conform us to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. Do it not only for our sake and for the sake of the world, but do it for your own glory, we pray. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to see you. Now, the 9 a.m. when they heard that passage being read from Acts 5 about Ananias, they just out loud chuckled. You were a lot more reverent about that. I just want you to know right off the bat. But <laughs> we're in the series called First Things, and this is a series about what it looks like to practice 
holy habits. Now, some of you make uh, New Year's resolutions, and resolutions can be a good thing, but we've discovered, my wife and I have discovered over the, the last several years that sometimes the best resolutions are not actually goals, but habits. Because you may or may not hit your goals, but your habits will affect you. Your habits will form you. And so there's a, there's a story of a basketball player where the goal is not to make 100 out of 100 free throws. The goal is to shoot free throws for 30 minutes after every practice. And all of a sudden, you get a better free throw shooting percentage. Now, when we talk about this in the Christian life, it's even more powerful. Because we aren't just talking about habits that we do to white knuckle, our, pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and kind of make ourselves pleasing to God. Not at all. What we're talking about are habits that put us in touch with the Holy Spirit, that help us participate in God's work. See, the work of spiritual formation is the Holy Spirit's work. The gospel is not come to me and then get your life back together again. The gospel is not I'll forgive you for all of the stuff in the past, now just don't mess up again in the future. The gospel is when you come to Jesus, you receive new life. You receive not only forgiveness, but you receive the Holy Spirit, the power to, to live as new creation. So part of living as new creation is learning new habits, is engaging in new practices that will set us on the right trajectory. So Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first God's rule and authority, and then all these other things will be added unto you. Or if we could put it in our own words, we might say something like this. When you orient your life around Christ and his lordship, everything snaps into place. It doesn't mean that life becomes easy. It doesn't mean you don't have hardship. It just means things begin to come together around the right center. So in week one of the series, we talked about what it looks like to seek God through Scripture and the story of Scripture. And last week, Pastor Jason Jackson did a marvelous job preaching to us about what it looks like to seek God through the community called the church, the imperfect yet sacred community that God calls us into. And this morning, as you might have guessed, we're going to talk about seeking God through worshipful giving and generous living. Now, if we're honest, the first time you, when you realize that this is a sermon where we're going to talk about money, immediately you're starting to squirm and you have some sort of like oh, a reaction. And I just want to say it's not too late to sneak out. You could act like you're going to the bathroom as several doors out of the high school. But honestly, I get it. I get it. I, I, I was exposed during my college years to some crazy teaching about money. Televangelists with private jets and lavish lifestyles tried to tell us that if you gave a certain amount to God, you would get lavish, extravagant financial blessings back. And so when we hear money being talked about in church, we either associate it with guilt and shame or coercion or this kind of strange sort of bribe where it actually appeals to our consumerism where it's almost like God is working with your selfishness and says, yeah, yeah, well, if you give to me, I will fulfill all of your selfishness. And I just want to say to you this morning, right off the bat, I was praying over this message, praying for you, and the overwhelming burden in my heart this morning is that the word of the Lord to you is this, God does not want your money, he wants your heart. He does not need your finances, but he desires your worship. He doesn't need your nickels and dimes, but he wants your allegiance. 
And this is not a sermon primarily about, okay, do we do the necessary stuff and go through the kind of thing. This is an invitation into a life of surrender to King Jesus. And it's interesting because finances are actually one of the places where we draw a little circle around it. And we're like, God, I love you. I want that whole heaven thing and I want that whole forgiveness thing. But stay out of the bedroom and stay out of my wallet. Don't tell me about morality and don't talk to me about money. But the kingdom wants to rearrange everything in our life. The New York Times, there was an opinion piece a couple months ago on Giving Tuesday. A sociologist was writing this opinion piece about giving in America. And she noted that since Giving Tuesday was introduced back in December of 2012, so over the last seven years, it has inspired more than $1 billion of donations. Now, that's amazing. America is so generous. And she said last year estimated giving topped $300 million. These numbers are big, she says, but actually in a typical year, 45% of Americans don't give a single dollar. Almost half of America doesn't give a single dollar. And she went on to say something like 74% don't volunteer a single hour. And so sometimes beneath the surface of all the big dollar numbers is actually the reality that we want to draw circles around our stuff. And we want to say, Jesus, you can touch that, you can talk about this, but don't talk about this. This morning, when you see the title here, Worshipful Giving, I want to introduce you to a way of thinking about giving and a kind of giving that is actually different than any other giving in the world. I want to introduce you to the, a kind of giving that the Bible talks about that is different than any kind of giving in the world. It's not a tax. Worshipful giving, giving to the Lord is not the sort of Christian tax. You know, you're like, well, Uncle Sam and Jesus. Worshipful giving is not a tip. Those white buckets that go by, you're not like, oh, that's pretty good service. Put in a couple extra, honey, you know. It's not a tip jar. Worshipful giving is not even a donation. Now, we have many wonderful Christian ministries in town. Many of you work for them. They're, they do a wonderful job of talking to us about being a donor and investing in all of that. But worshipful giving is not even a donation because Jesus is not calling donors. He's calling worshipers. And worshipful giving, let's add a couple more to this list, is not an investment. This is not the sort of shrewd way that you can say, well, what's my 10% return on that money market, mutual fund or whatever. And so in church, you know, God provides promises tenfold. So let's do the math on that and sort of some sort of kingdom investment. It's not even an investment because an investment still puts you in the driver's seat. It still is a way for you to stay in control. Well, I would like to invest in that church. Thank you very much. It's not an investment. And it's not a retired pastor caught me after the 9 a.m. He said, add one more to your list. He said, it's not membership dues. I was like, oh, like an HOA or, and he goes, no, no, like a country club. I'm like, I don't know how many country club uh, dues paying people we have. But either way, whatever dues you think of, <laughs> I'm certainly not paying uh, dues of that sort. Anyway, <laughs> worshipful giving is not dues either. It's not a tax. It's not a tip. It's not a donation. It's not an investment. It's not dues. What is Worshipful giving. Well, I'm glad you asked. We're going to have a little panel this morning. These are not just my imaginary friends for moral support. <laughs> We're going to have a panel uh, in a few moments, but I want to just give you a few things from the Bible this morning about worshipful giving. So let's say three things from the Old Testament. 
Worshipful giving in the Old Testament is seen in a practice called tithing. And the word tithe literally means a tenth. And it actually shows up in the, in the Old Testament as a practice that was kind of known in the ancient world. Abraham meets a king named Melchizedek and as a way of showing honor of paying homage to Melchizedek, Abraham gives him a tenth, gives him a tithe. But it actually transforms and becomes something more than that. What do we know about the Israelite practice of tithing? When God calls a people to himself and starts to give them instruction, tithing takes on a slightly different tone. First of all, it was always done as an act of worship. And some of these scriptures you'll just write down and we'll jump around in them a little bit. Leviticus 27, verse 30 and 32, every tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. And every tithe of the herds and the flocks, every tenth animal of all that pass under the herdsman's staff shall be holy to the Lord. And so tithing is introduced as an act of worship, as a way of consecrating something, the first and the best, and saying it is holy to the Lord. So it's always done as an act of worship, number one. Secondly, it's always brought to the place of worship. Always brought to the place of worship. Deuteronomy 12. But you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. And there you shall go and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and your contribution that you present. Your vow offerings, your free will offerings, the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. Bring it all to the place of worship. And then thirdly, it was used for the care of the priests and for the provision of the poor. Numbers 18, to the Levites, which were a specific tribe, they were the priests, the ones who kind of ran sort of the administration of worship. To the Levites I've given every tithe in Israel for an inheritance in return for the service that they do. Now in a moment, we're gonna see how Paul reaches back and continues this connection as he's instructing churches. Deuteronomy 26, there's actually a longer passage here than we had time to read this morning. But in that whole chapter, it gives an instruction about every third year, do something more than that. Give an extra tithe for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow so that they may eat within your towns and be filled. So if we were to summarize the Old Testament picture of this kind of worshipful giving, we'd say it was done as an act of worship, brought to the place of worship, and used for the care of priests and the provision of the poor. Now, you are smart people, and you're saying, well, that's Old Testament, man. We're not under the law. I mean, I had bacon for breakfast, for crying out loud. Like, good for you. Um, <laughs> and you're right. So what changes about this? Well, one of the interesting things to see about Jesus and money in the Gospels is as he does with so many things, Jesus actually ups the ante. You remember in Matthew's gospel where Jesus says in the Old Testament, it says that you have heard that it was said, don't commit adultery. I'm telling you, don't even look with lust. It, you have heard it was said, don't murder. I'm telling you, don't have hurt. Uh, don't have hate in your heart. And so in money, in, in a similar way, Jesus praises a widow for giving her two mites. And he says, look, we're not just talking about a tenth or the first and the best. We're talking about sacrificial giving. That's the first thing we note about how this kind of morphs in the New Testament, sacrificial giving. In fact, in one, at least one instance, Jesus tells a person who maybe had possessions possessing him, Jesus says, you got to sell everything 
and give it to the poor. Now, this wasn't his general advice, but this individual needed to be broken free of the slavery of possessions. But that's a radicalizing. Jesus didn't say, how about a tenth? He says, why don't you, you, you need to sell it all. Something else is going on here. So sacrificial giving becomes the goal. But here's some continuity with the Old Testament. Secondly, worshipful giving is brought to the apostles as the steward of the new temple. This is an interesting thing. So where do we see the parallel between where it's brought and what it's for? You see it in the way Paul talks to the church in Corinth. 1 Corinthians 9. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? He's making a connection back to Leviticus. And then he says, in the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Now, I know why this is tender. And we alluded to this at the beginning of the service. We say, well... It's nice to say that we should bring it to the place of worship and that it should care for the people who work at the church and all of that. But, man, we've seen this abuse. How do we know that it's being stewarded well? You are right to ask that question. And there is, you will never hear from any of our pastors or any of our staff, oh, well, just do it anywhere. We want to be transparent with you about this stuff. In fact, 13 years ago when Pastor Brady came, one of the things he discovered is that there was a lack of transparency about finances to the congregation. The congregation was not aware of the debt that the church had and where the giving was going. And so one of the first things he did was to change the organizational structure and the accountability structure at the church so we could then qualify for accountability to an agency called the ECFA. Now, I know you didn't come to church to memorize acronyms, okay? But if you're interested, it stands for the Evangelical Council of Financial Accountability. Now, they have a couple thousand, I think thousands of organizations that have uh, become members of the ECFA. But here's the interesting thing. There are about 200,000 churches in America, and there are only about 200 that have submitted to the requirements and gotten certified by the ECFA. Why? Because it's hard. Because it requires an annual audit. It requires non a majority of non-staff elders. It requires certain boundaries and parameters. New Life went through that, and we are pleased to be able to say that we are ECFA certified as New Life Church. Because we're stewarding your giving. In fact, the, the byline of all of our accountants, whenever you email them and they email you back, their byline signature is, <laughs> we are spending people's worship. I mean, if that is not a sober warning to every staff member who submits a purchase order, you're like, we are spending people's worship. In fact, I want, I want you to know this. I was checking this with our CFO this week. But New Life practices what we're encouraging people to do. So all of our staff tithes regularly back into the local church, and the church itself tithes. In fact, it double tithes. Uh, New Life Church consistently last year and the last couple years gave away 20% of everything given in, gave away 20% of it on outreach, local and global, around the world. It's a beautiful thing. And you know some of the local works, you know some of our local partners, you know about the Dream Centers and Mary's Home and the clinic. But, but globally and internationally, I got this from our missions pastor this morning, over 40 missionaries are supported through your giving. A couple dozen more organizations that we partner with in countries all around the world. So we're committed to living this way too. In fact, in a very real way, we're taking those two 
purposes of the money the same way, the, the priests and the poor. And so we're giving out, and the, the biggest chunk of it goes toward our staff team because we don't make widgets here at the church. We don't do products or put on massive things. What we are is people discipling people. And so 60% of our budget goes towards staff. Why? To help make disciples who make disciples to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. That's what we do. And it's about 8% that goes toward debt service. So some of, some, some, sometimes the impression of New Life is like, man, I bet that church just wastes all its money on like debt. It does not. 8%. We're giving twice that and more out beyond these doors. And I want you to know that because if you're going to bring worshipful giving to the place of worship, you ought to know that it's being stewarded well. Amen? Okay. Thirdly, and this is the piece of it with the, with the Acts story, it is an invitation, not an obligation. What changes with worshipful giving? It's an invitation, not an obligation. Isn't it interesting? You know, we listen to that story of Ananias, and a few verses later, his wife comes along and pulls the same shenanigans. She, too, uh, gets to join him in the afterlife. And, um, and we think, oh, my goodness, like, is this how God works? Like, give to me or else. <laughs> you know, no, that, that's not the story. In fact, Peter says it clearly. He says, you could have done whatever you wanted to with the proceeds. He doesn't say, well, you owed the church. He doesn't say that. He says, you could have done whatever you wanted to. You chose, though, to lie. And that's the issue. Sometimes we put all this guilt and shame on people, but in the New Testament we say, look, it is all grace. It's all invitation. It's all an opportunity to have your life transformed and to participate in God's work. And Peter is saying to Ananias and Sapphira, look, you see that God is on the move and you want to participate in his work. And that's a wonderful thing. Nobody was forcing you to do that. So don't lie about it. Do whatever you decided. And so Paul picks this up, I think, and says something similar in 2 Corinthians 9. He says, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. The late Catholic writer Henry Nouwen said this. He said, when we give into the church and the work of the kingdom, that is the only mechanism by which you can transform earthly resources into eternal gain. It's the only way to do that. You can turn your money in for a new sweater. You can turn your money in for a new house. You can do but the only way to turn your money into something that echoes into eternity is when you give to the church and to the kingdom. And that's the invitation, not the obligation. In fact, the Old Testament doesn't just talk about a tithe. It talks about generous living. And so you find instructions in there to farmers not to over-harvest their fields, but to leave the corners and the edges of it. And you're like, well, that's bad business. You're right, but it's great kingdom living. To not squeeze out every ounce of profit, profit so that other people can come along and benefit from it. And, of course, you see this picked up in the New Testament. The very next chapter after the Ananias and Sapphira story is the story of the early Christians saying, we've got to care for the Greek widows as well as for the Jewish widows. How do we do this? How do we care for them? James picks this up and he says, the true sign, true religion is that you care for the orphan and the widow. So the truth is, worshipful giving actually prepares us for generous living. 
Because the goal is not to say, okay, good. Am I good? Am I good? Is God, am I, have I checked the box? I'm good, right? I'm all right. You got my giving record, by the way. We, I don't check, we don't check your giving record, okay? Just in case you're wondering for that. But it is not a check the box, one and done. It's, it's supposed to propel you into a life of generosity. Giving in this way is not the end all. It's actually the start. In 2007, Relevant Magazine, which was a magazine kind of designed for 20-somethings, 30-somethings, but if you read it in 2007, you're like a 40-something now, so, you know, practically a, a boomer. Um, they, they did an interview, and they said, what is, what is one negative tendency of this generation as it relates to the faith? And a panel of different Christian leaders gave some answers, some pastors, some theologians, and there's a lady, Lauren Winner, who's the associate professor of Christian spirituality at Duke Divinity. And Lauren Winner gave this response. She said, our failure to tithe. Remember, the question was, what's a negative tendency of this generation as it relates to faith? She said, our failure to tithe. I hear, I hear it all the time. I just can't afford to give right now. And I hear that from my middle-class American peers. And I wonder, if we can't afford to give now, why not? And if we can't afford to give now, when will we be able to afford to give? I know of nothing that will transform someone's spiritual life more abruptly than beginning to tithe. If we want to learn about dependence on God, tithe. If we want to have our treasure in heaven, tithe. If we want to have any hope of having solidarity with the poor, tithe. Isn't that remarkable? In many ways, tithing is like training wheels for the generous life. Tithing is like training wheels. I want to get started. What do I do? Let's start doing this. And maybe it will propel us. But I understand that when you hear a pastor say this, you say, well, you have, you know, kind of a vested interest in saying this. Fair enough. And so I'd like to invite two couples, two dear friends, outstanding pillars in our community here at New Life Downtown, Jim and Martha Cole and Dan and Donna O'Brien, if you'd come and welcome them as they come, friends. Hi, guys. How are we doing? So I wonder if we could just start this way. Uh, tell us a little, just a tiny bit about your background, where you grew up, Christian home, not a Christian home. And when did you learn that Jesus kind of had something to say about money and finances? So we'll start over at this end here. Dan and I were blessed to be raised in Christian homes, both of us. Uh, and we do realize that is quite a blessing. Um, but my first knowledge that Jesus had, and money had something to do with each other was carrying those coins in my little hand to <laughs> Sunday school. Yeah. And those coins were for the offering, and the offering was for Jesus. <laughs> Me too, exact same experience. <laughs> both of you in central Illinois, right? Yeah, both in central Illinois. Well, actually, Chicago at that point. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, we got, we got some uh, Chi-Town shout-outs. Okay. Illini. Yeah, Illini, <laughs> yeah. You know, for me, similar, I grew up in a, in a home that I saw generosity, I saw the worshipful giving, and it was a part of the fabric of our family. And two stories that I thought of that, that still remain with me. Um, my mom, I remember the kitchen counter always being lined with sweetbreads that she was making to go with a meal that we were making to give to somebody. And I think about that in, in reflection, that took time. 
and money. So she mm-hmm. was generously living as yes. well as worshipfully giving. My dad was an insurance agent, and I remember him paying deductibles or insurance premiums so that people's insurance didn't lapse or that they could get wow. the repairs. And as Amazing. I reflect on that, again, that's money, but it's the compassion of the yes. heart. Yes. That idea that it comes together for the whole person, not just God wanting the money. So good. Now, a little different than my good friends all sitting up here, I grew up outside of the church, Um, was not introduced to Jesus in any fashion until I hit my early 20s. You you had long hair, you were in a traveling music band. I traveled around the globe, did all kinds of crazy stuff. Uh, What is it, down with people, up with people, what was it called? Something like that. It was pretty crazy. So when I was introduced (laughs) to Christ, I'm just going to pass, we're going to move right on by the way, we don't have time for that. Sorry. But when, when I was introduced to Christ, it was a radical experience, a complete re-architecting of my life, very much uh, my journey like we see happening in our Alpha programs. Mm. And my first introduction to giving and the notion that God had something to say about money was those that proceeded before me. Mm. Because somebody paid and invested gave into translating the Word of God to create the very first Bible that I ever cracked open was blown away by the Word of God. So I'm so thankful mm. for those that proceeded before in making those investments. And then was, was stunned to see the things that God had to say in that in Old and New Testament about uh, money and mm. riches and, more importantly, about the heart. Yeah, yeah. So what difference has is this made in your life? So for a lot of you that's been... A few decades now, we won't say how many uh, exactly, but, but what difference has this sort of practice made in your life? I mean, Martha, you talked about the genera- generous living that kind of comes from this, but what's kind of your story on that? And Donna, actually, Donna, I'll start with you because Donna just retired from 35 years as a financial advisor uh, at Edward Jones. And so I'm even curious in your perspective on this when you see people who develop disciplines versus don't. Yeah, it is interesting to have that perspective of not just my own life and my parents' life, but hundreds of people and different ways people approach this. But one of the basics of investing and purposes of investing is to be financially independent, financially solvent, and financially responsible. But generally you say, be sure you pay yourself first. And what that means is make sure that you're setting aside those savings dollars, not just saving whatever's left at the end of the month. But for the Christian life, it's pay God first. then everything else follows. So in, in your, and I always knew which of my clients were, were Christian and were following that mm. uh, and could see that, the fruits of that. But having that uh, thought of all the money that passes through your hands every month, how much of that should I be setting aside? Mm. And setting aside for what? Mm. Yeah, and when we were first married uh, over 43 years ago, uh, we got married five days later, I started law school. And Donna was a school teacher back then, and uh, she made $8,000 a year. And so we sat down the second weekend of our life together and uh, tried to figure out how much we could give to the church we were going to go to. And uh, we figured we could spare $25 a week, which was, it works out to about $1,200 a year. And $1,200 a year on 8000 it was tight, I'll be honest with you. But we just understood that everything we had and would ever have came from God. Mm. And that's where you start. Mm. 
So, so I get radically saved in this process and introduced to all these things that, that the Lord had to say. And then it comes to giving. Now, I, at that point in time, was an extremely impoverished college student. That was no, I, had, I had nothing but oodles of debt to my name. And so the notion of giving was like, I'm barely making it. And yet, there was also something, and this goes back to what you talked about earlier, about the heart. And I could feel the Lord working on my heart like, if you're going to trust me for all these other things, will you trust me here and begin nurturing that? But that first tithe check that I ever wrote, uh, and I think it was a check or maybe it was cash, but I just, the sweat was pouring down my brow <laughs> as you kind of quiver and drop it in the white bucket. <laughs> And, you know, for me, I just, again, look at it as um, I grew up seeing it in a practical way mm. as well as a fun way. Mm. And when Jim and I met and got married, um, as he said, he was an impoverished college student. <laughs> so I married him for potential. <laughs> <laughs> and it's paid off. Now, now, quick, now quick, yeah, quick plug. Uh, Jim and Martha lead a fabulous ministry called First Year. It's for people in their first year marriage meets two Fridays a month. I mean, listen, don't you want to spend time with them and hear more? <laughs> but I, I think it became a, a very early age. It wasn't um, because we had enough. It wasn't because we were at the right place. It was because out of a heart of devotion, a heart of compassion, a heart of wanting to obey for us to give to mm give in hospitality, to give in a tithe, to overtip, do mm. what we could with what we had mm. for the kingdom. Well, the beautiful thing about all four of you and those of you who know the O'Briens and know the Coles, you know this about them, generosity overflows from your life in all kinds of ways, in hospitality and hosting people. I know Dan and Donna have just been standing with people through a very difficult season recently, Jim and Martha, constantly. I mean, you guys, your homes are open, your hearts are open. So this has been a practice that it, it goes beyond money. It, it may have started with that, but then it overflows into more. So some final thoughts here. What would you say to people who maybe haven't begun, and uh, maybe they never thought about it, maybe they're not able to? What would you say to people who aren't yet giving regularly to the Lord in some way? Uh, my father, who I lost about 35 years ago, uh, was a wise man. And he always said, and I can remember from about the age of five, he told me this. He said, you can tell a lot about a man and what he values by where he puts his money. And I think that's so true. I just know that, you know, as the people come through this, these doors every week, lives are changed. Christ is reaching people day after day here. And that's the most important thing in the world. I know as a father and a grandfather, my, I've been praying for my children and grandchildren before they were ever born, that they would have faith and follow the Lord. And it's so important. And that there are people that will be coming through these doors long after probably all of us are gone. Mm -hmm. And they will be accepting the Lord, and the mm. Holy Spirit will be moving in the lives of the people mm. that come here. Amen. Amen. And that makes it all worthwhile. Mm. Amen. So I would say if, you're, if you can start somewhere, that's our focus. What can we do to further this kingdom, and what is going to help build and grow that kingdom? And, um, you know, if your financial house isn't in order, there's, there's resources and opportunities yes. for you to, to get that straight. Um, but it's an important piece of the whole picture. Mm -hmm. 
Can, can I just say, connected to that, uh, two things. One, just start. Just start. If we're going to trust the Lord, then let's trust him fully. And let's not hold back and let's begin this journey. Not because there's something coming in return. Yeah, yeah. That's not why we do that as we study the scriptures this morning. But because we're really trusting God. Secondly, and I want to build an end on what um, Dan had to say, which is the legacy of who we are as a people of God in downtown Colorado Springs. Yeah. To pour into our community near and far and let, let each of your households individually or collectively determine what has God called us to to be earmarked as our legacy. The generations will look back and say, so as we journey forward as a congregation and, and whether we have plenty or whether we have leanness pouring into each other's lives yeah. is, uh, can make a huge difference and impact for Christ. And all I would add with is I, I love the cheerful giver. Mm. It is so much fun. Once you find that worshipful <laughs> giving great. and generous living, mm. it is fun. It's not an obligation. Mm. It's a joy. It's, mm. it's fun to be a part of the so kingdom. Good. So good. I want to say one thing. Sometimes some of you might find yourself in a season of financial hardship. It's okay to be in a season where you receive that's one of the reasons why we give worshipfully to the Lord each week, so that we can do that. Uh, we, we gave $150,000 in benevolence to our own congregants last year. Uh, there's a process where people can apply for that and receive financial coaching from the church and help with that. But part of the idea of sharing with one another is that when you are in times of crisis or difficult times, you can lean on the strength of one another. And then as you're able, go ahead uh, and start however small that is. But let the Holy Spirit uh, kind of guide you in that. Thank you so much, Martha, Jim, Donna, Dan. Thank you, guys. Final scripture this morning as we begin to prepare our hearts for the table. 2 Corinthians verse, uh, chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. Uh, Paul again is talking to the Corinthians and he's encouraging them with the example of another congregation. And he says, brothers and sisters, we want to let you know about the grace of God. The word for grace is simply the word gift. The gift of God that was given to the churches of Macedonia while they were being tested by many problems, their extra amount of happiness and their extreme poverty resulted in a surplus of rich generosity. I assure you that they gave what they could afford and even more than they could afford and they did it voluntarily. Verse 7, be the best in this work of grace, he says to them, in the same way that you're the best in everything, such as faith, speech, knowledge, total commitment, and the love we inspired in you. Paul saying, look, you're doing so well. Don't let this be one area of your life where you draw a circle around it and say, uh-uh, Lord. Open it all up to him. And then he says, I'm not giving an order, but by mentioning the commitment of others, I'm trying to prove the authenticity of your love also. You know the gift, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And here it is. Although he was rich, he became poor for your sakes so that you could become rich through his poverty. In the end, friends, it is God's grace that produces our generosity. Christians are not generous people because we're so good and we've learned such good values. Christians become generous people because we've caught a revelation of God's generosity to us. Amen? Amen. So you bow your heads this morning as we get ready to come to the table. This is the moment where we reflect on the generosity 
of God to us.